Thank you, choir. If you have your Bible, I hope you do open up to First Peter, First Peter chapter one. First Peter chapter one. First Peter chapter one. As you turn there, you think about the songs that we've sung this morning, looking forward to that place that God has prepared for all who belong to Him. Uh, I love singing, singing about it. Even read that scripture earlier and in these songs, um, I wanted just to bring tears to my eyes, thinking about um, all that God has prepared for us. And yet, it's also a reminder as we sing these songs about that place, that that place is not this place. Amen? Uh, we're not there yet. And, and as Peter writes this letter, and we're gonna, I'm not going to give a lot of context because that's what we're going to talk about in our passage this morning, but, um, but as he writes this letter, that's that tension that he's going to deal with. How, how we are to live as followers of Christ in a world that is not our home, yet constantly remembering that we do have a home and we are on our way there. And by God's grace and by His grace alone, we will arrive there one day. But we aren't to sit around with our hands folded, looking like the rest of the world while we wait for that promised land. So if you'll turn your eyes to 1 Peter, we're just going to begin with the first two verses this morning. This introduction to this letter here in the New Testament. We find these words, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to this most important time in our service, in this, in this moment of worship, Father. Or we seek to honor you in many different ways. But Father, truly one of the greatest ways we can honor you is by taking you and your word seriously. So Father, we pray that you would be glorified in the way that we have read and the way that we study this passage. And then in the way that we seek to apply the truths of your word to our lives. Father, illuminate our hearts and our minds to be able to understand spiritual truths that your word contains. Father, may it be all for your honor and glory as we seek to put into practice your words, as we seek to live out in our day-to-day lives all that your word calls us to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
We're going to begin today our study of this book of First Peter, a book that I have been looking forward to walking through and studying for, for a long time. And uh, maybe you're very familiar with the book of First Peter, this letter to these Christians. Maybe, maybe you're not very familiar. That's okay. Uh, I have a lot to learn myself uh, when it comes to this letter. And um, so we're going to begin today with just these first two, uh, two verses. This is a letter uh, written by the Apostle Peter. And, and uh, he's writing to a particular group of people. And so we're going to look at that today. We're going to look at this in three, three basic parts. The who the how and the blessing, okay? I know that last one doesn't really fit with the first two, but I couldn't think of anything better to say. So the who, the how, and the blessing. Um, and, uh, and that's how we're going to look at these two verses. Um, these are only two verses, and they're pretty short verses. They don't take up much room in my Bible, about that much room. If you have large print, maybe a little bit more. But these verses, while they're small in their length, they are enormous in their weight of theological matters in their weight of meaning they are enormous in in um, encouragement to us as followers of christ and so we want to begin with that who uh, first is a pretty easy question um, and that's who's writing this and we see that it is peter an apostle of jesus christ this is one of the 12 often called disciples, um, and we know them as apostles that Jesus uh, called out to follow him. Certainly there were other disciples in, uh, in the Gospels that we read about, in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. In fact, in one place we see that there were 70 disciples of Jesus that he, he sent out um, to, uh, to, to the surrounding areas to share the good news that the Christ had, had arrived. But there were 12 specially uh, hand-picked Men who God had called out for a very specific purpose, and these this this uh, this office of apostle is a is an office that was it was one and done, if you will. Uh, there are no more apostles. Uh, occasionally, you may hear someone um, in, in some kind of office in a church refer to themselves as an apostle. Uh, we don't see that office continuing in Scripture. Uh, it was it was. Twelve men, of course, one was Judas who betrayed Jesus. He was replaced in, uh, in the beginning of Acts. But there were twelve men that God had specifically called out to be apostles. He said, what, what is the office of an apostle? All of us are called to be disciples of Jesus. In fact, we're to go and make more disciples, uh, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 28. But this office of apostle is unique. And I'm not going to spend a, a lot of time this morning, but I at least want to give you a, maybe a quick definition um, and, uh, that, that would help us think about what an apostle is. An apostle is an eyewitness of Jesus, specially chosen and commissioned by Jesus to carry on the mission of Jesus after his ascension. I'll say that one more time. And an apostle is an eyewitness of Jesus, specially chosen and commissioned by Jesus to carry on the mission of Jesus after Jesus's ascension, after he ascended back to his father's side. So, so these men, specially called out by God, they were eyewitnesses of Jesus. We even see Peter referred to himself as being an eyewitness over in chapter 5. Over in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ 
as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Peter was a witness of Jesus Christ. He was a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Of course, we know that Peter has an incredible story that is a great encouragement to me and I think to all of us as Christians. Of course, Peter was the one who on the night that Jesus was arrested, denied even knowing Jesus three times, just like Jesus told him he would do and just like Peter denied that he would do, he denied Jesus Three times, but Jesus, we see, gives him a, a trifold restoration after Jesus is uh, resurrected from the dead. And he asks Peter three times, Do you love me? And he says, Yes. And Jesus says, Then feed my sheep, tend my flock, care for those that I have entrusted to you, that the Father has entrusted to me. And so now, it's about 30 years after that, we see Peter continuing to follow Jesus Christ. And now he's writing this letter to encourage believers. And that leads us to the second part of our who. And this is where we're going to spend a little more time on. Who is Peter writing to? Who is Peter writing to? Well, it says here, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And so he calls these people that he's writing to elect exiles of the dispersion. And then he lists these five different uh, regions, if you will. These aren't necessarily cities. These are, these are regions all in, um, in what is modern-day Turkey. That's where these, all of these places are located, were located what is now modern-day Turkey. But what does it mean to be elect exiles of the dispersion? Elect exiles of the dispersion. We're going to spend more time thinking about those two words, elect exiles. Um, but I want to talk about the word dispersion for just a moment. Dispersion was an actual event. When we think about the, the dispersion, uh, we're talking about the scattering of Jews from their homeland as a result of God's judgment on them. And so at this particular time, when Peter is writing this, Jewish people, uh, while many do still live in, in the region of Israel, in Jerusalem area, uh, Judea, Samaria, many have been scattered out to other countries. And many, even, many Jews have been scattered to these areas and these regions that are listed here. So that is the dispersion, which is mentioned other places in Scripture. The literal dispersion, scattering of, of Jews. But... As we study through this letter, we'll see that, that Peter really isn't writing to Jewish Christians. He's writing to Gentile believers. We can see that in a few different places and, and, uh, and how he talks about their past life. And it just doesn't make sense that that past life would be describing the past life of a Jew. Uh, it seems to be that he is writing to Gentile believers. So why does he tell them that they're of the dispersion? If the dispersion was a scattering of Jews... Why is he referring to these Gentile Christians as elect exiles of the dispersion? Well, when the Jews were scattered to all of these different nations, they found themselves literally as exiles, literal, physical exiles. In a political sense, in a, in a geographic sense, they were living somewhere that wasn't their home. They were from Israel, and now they're scattered into these other nations, and, and they found life difficult in those places. But in a very real sense, that is what is true of everyone who is a follower of Jesus. Our, our citizenship has been changed. And what we used to call our home is no longer our home, even if we keep physically living in the same place. And so metaphorically, 
these Gentile Christians who may be living in their birthplace. They may actually be from Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. They may have been born and raised there. But now, because they are elect exiles, which generally means they are Christians, that's, that's what that means. We'll talk about that more in a moment. But because they have gone from death to life, because they have gone from separated from God to join into God's family, because they have gone from citizens of this world to citizens of heaven, they are like those Jews who have been dispersed. The place where they live is not their home. And that's exactly what this entire letter is about. How do we as believers live out our Christianity in a world that God has said is no longer our home and yet he has chosen for us to remain here until that time when we get to be with him for all of eternity. So that's the word dispersion. What about this elect exiles? I want to I give you, uh, hopefully, three helpful definitions. All right, The first definition is going to be of the word elect. Second definition is going to be of the word exile. And the third definition is just going to be a summary of those two uh, definitions, elect exiles. Okay, So I know that sounds confusing, but I don't think it will be All right, as we walk through it. What does it mean to be elect? What does it mean to be an exile? And then let's put those together. What's it mean to be an elect exile? And that's how we're going to uh, kind of wrap up this who part of our uh, time here today. So it says to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. It's a particular word, kolektos in the Greek. And we want to know what that means. We see that word used in its noun form and in its verb form several times throughout the New Testament in reference to believers in Christ. Let me give you this definition, and then I want to look at a few other uh, uh, scriptures to help us understand and begin to wrap our mind. I use the word begin. I don't think it's something that we ever fully wrap our mind around, uh, but to begin to wrap our mind around um, this, this, uh, this truth, this biblical truth of election. To be elect means belonging to God in a father-child relationship as a result of his loving choice. To be elect means belonging to God in a father-child relationship as a result of his loving choice. When we pick up that father-child relationship, even in verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. We know all throughout Scripture, uh, we we learn that, that God adopts us into his family. And through the blood of Jesus Christ, we get to be a part of the family of God. The beautiful relationship that we have as followers of Christ. To be elect means belonging to God in a father-child relationship as a result of his loving choice. The emphasis here is, is, is put on the sovereignty of God and, and his, his choice to, to put his love on people. We find in Romans chapter 8, verse 33, uh, this very familiar passage, some questions that the Apostle Paul writes. And he says this, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? And then I want you to notice in this verse and in a few others, the context of election is always centered in the love of God. Notice this, it says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So election centered in what Jesus has done for us. And then notice the love that comes next. This is Romans chapter eight in verse thirty five. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or any host of things that we would face while we live in this world. Physically, in a sense, separated from God, I'm not in heaven yet. But spiritually joined to him. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through, notice the word love again, him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither the death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us. Here we go again from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's why I use that phrase, his loving choice. Another place that we see this election Combined with the love, deep love of God is in the book of Colossians. And Paul writing to the Colossians there says these words in chapter three. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience. And he goes on with a whole list of other things that are to to characterize our lives as believers. But notice how Paul in Colossians chapter three describes believers put on then. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, loved deeply by God. Those who are elect are loved deeply and incredibly and perfectly and forever by a loving father. Paul writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10, he refers to the Christians there as the elect. He says, therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. One other place that I want to I go to before we move to the word exile is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. It's in the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians. And we find, um, we find these words there. Chapter 1, verse 3. I'm just going to read verses 3 through 6. And here we have the, the same word um, in First Peter, the word elect. There it's, it's a noun. Uh, describing who these people are here in, in Ephesians it's that same word, but it's the verb form. So instead of be chosen, it's God choosing his his uh, his act of choosing. And notice just the beauty of, of this and the confidence that it provides us in our salvation. Uh, Paul writing to the Ephesian church says this. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Here's that word love again. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. The beloved there is Jesus Christ. And it goes on to talk about what Jesus has done for us. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. What does it mean to be elect? It means to belong to God in a father-child relationship with all the blessings and benefits that comes with being a child of God. The forgiveness. 
the, the, the mercy and the love and the grace, the relationship there, the access to God as our Father, being able to go to Him in prayer, the promise, the promise that, that this life is not all there is and that we, that we are promised and assured, not just this wishy-washy kind of hope, but a, but a strong and true, as He's going to say in, in, in the next couple of verses in First Peter, a living hope that we have. That, that we will one day see Him face to face. All the blessings of that relationship as a result of His loving choice. Because we can't take any credit for it. God gets all the glory. That's the word elect. What about exiles? What about exiles? You say, man, we're spending a lot of time on just two words. These are important because He's going to come back to these words at different places in this letter. And this is setting the stage for why He's writing to these believers. And really, He is encouraging them. These believers that He's writing to, they are exiles. When we think about the word exiles, that doesn't seem like a fun thing to be. And it's not. And it's not sugar-coated in First Peter. There are real trials, there are real struggles that they are facing on a daily basis as Christians living in a world opposed to Christ. They're not opposed to Christ. The world is opposed to Christ. And yet, He's giving them confidence in their salvation by calling them the elect exiles with all the blessings that come with knowing Jesus and having that fatherly, fatherly relationship with God. What about this word exile? Let me give you a, a definition and then let's give a few scriptures to go along. To be exiles means being separated by God from the world while remaining in the world. To be exiles means being separated by God from the world while remaining in the world. It makes us think back to even what Jesus said, right? In John chapter uh, 17, when he prayed that, that for his disciples, not that God would take them out of the world, but they would not be of the world, right? That they would be in the world, but living here, God, don't, God, Father, don't take them out of this world, but in a sense, take them out of this world. Well, what does Jesus mean by that? He is praying in John 17 that his followers would be exiles. You say, well, that doesn't sound like a good thing. I mean, Jesus prayed that we would be exiles. Yeah, he, he did. It's actually a part of God's plan for your life, Christian, that you would be an exile, that you would live in this world. But at the same time. You'd be separated by God from the world that you live in. We see this in first Peter chapter two, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. In that passage that I read earlier in the service, in that hall of fate, if you will, I want to read one of those verses again. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13. These all died in faith. Talking about these who believed in God and believed in the promises of God. And, and really in that passage in Hebrews, it's talking about folks that, that were alive before Jesus. They were, they were looking forward to Christ. They were believing that God was going to send someone. They didn't even know who Jesus was. They didn't know what he was going to look like. They didn't know that what he was going to do other than some of the prophecies that were given. We have the privilege of looking back on what Christ has done. 
But they were looking forward and they continued through their lives, through all the struggles to have faith. But notice what kept them moving forward. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. What a, what a beautiful phrase to see the promises of God from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. What kept them trusting in the Lord? It was that they saw themselves as exiles. They looked around and said, this is not my home. I have a far better home. An exile is not homeless. An exile just doesn't live where his or her home is. We have a home. We are not homeless as Christians. We just haven't arrived yet in our heavenly home. And until that day, until that time, there will be trials. There will be struggles. Even jump ahead for just a moment, if you will. Notice verse 6 in chapter 1 of 1 Peter. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. That's just a foretaste of what's coming in Peter in this letter. He's going to talk over and over again about the struggles and the trials these believers are facing. What keeps us going is that that we are not at home here. We are exiles. So let me summarize this this who section. Elect exiles. Let's put those words together. I want to give you one more definition. I want to give you some definitions to help you think about this. And, And these are definitions I want you to kind of hang on to and remember. And we'll probably come back to them as we work our way through this letter. In the coming weeks. And we're not going to go just two verses at a time. I promise. We'd never get finished. We're just taking these two verses today. Elect exiles. Let's put those together. Let me give you just one more definition. What does it mean to be an elect exile? To be an elect exile means God has chosen to give me a new citizenship. Which should define my lifestyle. While I temporarily, temporarily live in my old homeland. To be an elect exile means God has chosen to give me a new citizenship which should define my lifestyle while I temporarily live in my old homeland. We have God's election there with the word chosen. We have this new citizenship that he gives us. We have the fact that I'm still living in my old homeland, even though I belong somewhere else. But we also have the hope and that promise that it's a temporary exile. It's not something that will last forever. Again, the Apostle Paul writes to the Philippians and says, but our citizenship is in heaven. Philippians chapter 3. Here's what, here's what that means. We simultaneously are included in God's family and excluded from the world. That, that, that's, that's what this elect exiles means. It means I belong and I don't belong. To be elect means I belong to God. To be in exile means I don't belong to the world. What happens as we walk through this world as Christians is the pressures come against us. That song we sang a minute ago, Satan's darts, his arrows, his flaming arrows, as Paul writes about in some of his letters, that they are shot at us. And the temptation is to begin looking like we don't belong to God and we belong to the world. That's the temptation that you and I face every day. You say, what in the world does this have to do with my day-to-day life? This sounds like some, some theological discussion meant for the classroom. 
It is meant for the classroom, for the classroom of life. Every single day this is the tension that we live in. Where the world is calling us to belong to it. Where those around us want us to look like them and talk like them and act like them and do the things that they do and laugh at the things that they laugh at and spend our time and our money investing in the things of this world while God has called us out of this world. To be an elect exile means you belong to God and not to the world. But I wonder how many of us as Christians look more like we belong to the world and like we don't belong to God. So I don't understand why would God leave us here if he doesn't want us to look like the world. Oh, we're going to get to that. We're going to get to that. Can I just summarize and say there is work to be done here, Christian. There's a mission that God has called us to. And we're going we're gonna to get there. We're going to look at that. But the only way that later, not today, as we get in, especially into chapter 2, but the only way that we will live out the mission that He has called us to live, the only way we'll be effective as disciples of Jesus Christ is if we remember that we belong to God and not to this world. Then we will be able to live in this world effectively for God. We are elect exiles. In 1 Peter, we're going to learn how elect exiles are to live in relation to our civic leaders, to our employers, to our spouses, to our church family. Peter's going to talk about some very practical things about what it means and what it looks like to live as as elect exiles in our world. Now, I wanted to spend a good bit of time on the who this morning. So briefly, let me give you the how. And then the blessing is really just one statement. The how. How, how, what does this look like? Verse two, these these three kind of four, three, the third one is is two combined into one. But there's three things in in chapter in, in verse two that qualify the elect exiles. So those who are elect exiles and then go to verse two according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. Let's start with that first one. The, 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 the how. Elect exiles, number one, are chosen by God the Father in accordance with His eternal plan. Elect exiles are chosen by God the Father in accordance with His eternal plan. We get this incredible word foreknowledge here. We are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Not according to us, not according to me and my good works, not even according to my passionate plea to God. Or the sincerity of my faith. We are like exiles according to the foreknowledge of God. And there's so much hope and so much confidence that comes with that. In fact, we see this word foreknowledge used to describe in Scripture here in First Peter and in Acts chapter 2, verse 23 of Jesus coming to die on the cross for our sins. Look, skip over in chapter 1 to verse 20. 1 Peter 1.20. Speaking of Jesus, you can see that in verse 19, the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Verse 20, he was foreknown, same word. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. 
So according to the foreknowledge of God, Jesus came and appeared. He was made manifest. And what do you do? Verse 19, he shed his blood like a like a lamb. So according to the foreknowledge of God, Jesus came. Was it just simply that God just knew somewhere in in the future that Jesus was going to decide to come or we were going to decide that Jesus was going to come? No, the foreknowledge of God is God's decision that he was going to send his son. We see that again, I said, in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. We find these words. Peter, imagine that, preaching at Pentecost in Jerusalem as Jews from all the nations have gathered there. And he says this in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. This Jesus delivered up, that means, that means given over to be crucified. This Jesus delivered up according to, to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So Peter is speaking to the Jews who had Jesus crucified, and he says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Notice that the two words he uses there, one word, definite plan, second word, foreknowledge. Foreknowledge, the foreknowledge of God is not just God simply looking into the future and seeing what might happen or what's going to happen. Foreknowledge, when it comes to God, is his divine plan. We see this again in Romans chapter 8, verse 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, same word that Peter uses in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. For those whom he foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. I was going to get to this at the end, but I just have to stop for just a second there. This is the text is so glorious. Why is Peter saying this to Christians who are struggling to, to live out the, the calling that God has placed on their lives? Is he just trying to bore them with theological terminology? No. Is he just trying to fill their minds with lots of information that they might find interesting, but has nothing to do with their lives? Absolutely not. What gives us confidence to continue living out the Christian life when we're faced with pressures all around us to conform to the ways of the world? Well, one thing that that absolutely gives me confidence to keep going is the fact that God has a divine plan planned before the foundation of the world to love me and to send his son to die for me. And nothing could keep Jesus from coming and nothing's going to keep God from continuing to love me and nothing's going to keep me out of heaven because it's all a part of God's plan. And that gives us great confidence to keep going, to keep going, to keep going. Quickly, the, the, the other two. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, he's continuing to talk about how it is that we are elect exiles. We're elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, but also we're elect exiles in the sanctification of the Spirit. Well, that, what is that talking about? It's simply talking about the role of the Holy Spirit in our salvation. To be sanctified means to be set apart. It goes right along with this theme of being in exile. To be sanctified means to be set apart specifically for a holy purpose. 
And as we'll see in First Peter, we are absolutely set apart for a holy purpose. We are to live holy lives. We're to make holy choices in our lives. We're responsible to make those holy choices because we belong to God. But we are set apart. The role of the Holy Spirit in our salvation, God planning our salvation, the Spirit sanctifying us, regenerating our souls. No one, no one comes to the Father except the Father draw that person to himself. How does the Father, by the way, that was Jesus' words. I might have. I might not have said them verbatim, but that's, those are his words. I might have got them a little mixed up. But the meaning is still there. How, how did you come to know Christ, Christian? How are you an elect exile? How are you forgiven of your sin? Because at some point, the Holy Spirit drew your heart to God and opened up your mind to understand the depravity of your sin. How you are broken before God and separated from Him. And yet at the same time, open up your eyes to see that Jesus came and died on the cross for your sin. For your sin. And that if you would choose to follow Jesus, that you would repent of your sin and trust in Him, that He would save you. How does all that happen in a dead heart? Because God... The Spirit breathes new life, regeneration into our hearts. Here's how Paul says it in his letter to Titus. He says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Christian, if you are a Christian, you are a Christian because the Holy Spirit has sanctified you. He has set you apart. He has washed you. He has regenerated you. He has renewed your heart. He has awakened your dead heart and breathed new life into you. God did that. Praise God. He did that to me as an eight-year-old boy. That moment I can remember my eyes were open to my sin. And I knew that I was separated from God forever. And at the same time, my eyes and my heart were open to the, to the love of Jesus poured out on Calvary's cross. Man, the Holy Spirit was drawing my heart. And I knew that I, knew that I needed this and there was nothing else that could get me out of the predicament that I was in because of my sin except for Jesus Christ and Him alone. That day I, I repented of my sin and I, I chose to follow Jesus. And I asked God to forgive me and he, he saved me. How is that possible? It's because God, through His Spirit, had awakened my heart. And then this third thing, and we, it goes right along. You can't talk about one without talking about the second, without talking about the third. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, I think I forgot to give you your, your definition. We'll put them up here. Number one, we got number one. Number two, it's already up there. Elect exiles are set apart from this world by the work of the Holy Spirit. Number three, elect exiles are obedient to the gospel of Jesus and are purified by the blood of Jesus. This is the one that I said is like two, but it's combined into one in this verse. For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. 
for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Uh, if you're writing notes, write down Exodus chapter 24. Exodus chapter 24. You know what? I, I'm still going to go there. I wasn't going to, but I, I've got to. Because here's the, here's the, um, the passage that I think Peter is, is harking back to. In the Old Testament, Exodus, standing at the Mount, of, of Mount Sinai, and they're getting the law, and they're getting the commandments, they're getting the covenant of God. And it says this. I'm just going to pick up in verse 7. Then he, that's Moses, took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. Notice the parallel there in First Peter, for obedience to Jesus Christ. The people of Israel will say, and we will be obedient. And then verse 8, Exodus 24, verse 8. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So there's this combination of obedience to God and being sprinkled with the blood of a sacrifice. And I think that's the illustration that Peter is drawing from uh, for the, the account, uh, historical account that Peter is drawing from when he says that we are elect exiles for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. But there's a huge, huge difference in the Exodus blood and the Peter blood. The Exodus blood was the blood of bulls and goats. That cannot save us from sin. And so the promise that the people made to obey Jesus was a vain promise. They couldn't do it. And they failed over and over and over because their hearts were not regenerated and the Holy Spirit had not worked salvation into them. But this blood is different because this is the blood of God become man dying for our sin, a perfect sacrifice that is pleasing and acceptable to God, that God applies to our lives as we obey Jesus. We'll talk about that in just a second. And he rescues us. Now, we could take this obedience to think about our lives as Christians. God, we are elect exiles to obey him in our Christian life. And I think that's somewhat what Peter is talking about. But I still think he's talking about our initial salvation. We say, well, we're not saved by work, so why would it say that we're elect exiles through our obedience to Jesus? Because that's not how we get saved. We get saved by grace through faith. And I would agree with you, and Peter would agree with you. Sometimes in Scripture, obedience to Jesus is a, is a, is a phrase that's used to refer to trusting in the gospel of salvation. Let me just give you one example of that. It comes from Romans chapter five, excuse me, Romans chapter one, verse five. Paul is not talking about living as a Christian here in Romans. He's talking about becoming a Christian. And he says this. Um, he's talking about Jesus rising from the dead, just trying to give you a little context. And he says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Obedience of faith for the sake of his name. And that's just one place where we see this word obedience used in a salvation sense, not in the sense of uh, following Jesus with my life after I've been saved. And so, so put this all together for just a second, these, these three things. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, the sanctification of the Spirit, and obedience to Jesus, which I think basically means trusting in the gospel of Jesus, being obedient to that gospel call of repent and believe that Jesus declared when he was here on the earth. At the same time as we trust in Jesus, God applies the blood of Jesus to our hearts. 
At the same time, the Spirit is working salvation in us, all because God planned it according to His divine foreknowledge. And therefore, Peter says, in light of all that God has done for you, through the Father, God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son, this Trinitarian view of salvation, you are elect exiles. Now, if that doesn't give you confidence to live for the Lord, I don't know what will. The blessing. The blessing. What's the last phrase? May grace and peace be multiplied to you. This was somewhat of a standard intro to a letter in these day and time. It wasn't unusual for somebody to say peace as like a greeting. The Hebrew word would have been shalom. Of course, this is written, written in Greek. But it was, that was, a, that was a, a, a standard greeting. Peace, grace and peace be multiplied to you. But here's the thing. Jesus redefines what grace and peace are. Because our salvation is centered on what God has done for us, not what we do for God. It is a free gift because we definitely don't deserve anything that Peter has described as true of us as Christians in verse 1 and 2. We don't deserve it, therefore it's grace. And because it's a gift that God has divinely planned and worked out through His Son, applies in our hearts through His Spirit. Nothing can take that away from us. Even our sin, our stumbling, can't remove that salvation from us, and therefore we get to live a life of peace. Not worrying. Maybe I, maybe I actually do belong to this world. Maybe I, maybe I don't belong to God. Oh wait, today I stumbled. Today I stumbled and I looked like the world today. Maybe God doesn't love me anymore. No, He loves you according to His divine foreknowledge. Through His Spirit. And by His Son. And He still loves you, Christian. Even though yesterday, maybe you looked more like the world than you looked like Jesus. There's confidence for us as Christians. There's a beautiful blessing. Can I just ask a question as we close? We've we've talked about what what it means to be an elect exile, and certainly we haven't exhausted all that we could talk about. It's just two verses. But I hope you can see it's beautiful. There's nothing else I would want to be in this world than an elect exile. Perhaps today, you say, that's great for those who are. But if Peter was writing this letter today, I don't think I would be a recipient. Because I don't think I'm an elect exile. I don't think these things about God's love is true in my life. I I don't think the Spirit has opened my heart up to receive salvation. I don't think I've been obedient to the call of Jesus to repent and believe the gospel. And, and I, I don't think that my life has been sprinkled by this blood of Jesus that can wash away my sin. Can I, can I just share with you the, the most important thing you can do today is to, one, admit that. That you're not in elect exile right now because those things are not true of you. And then to trust in Jesus as your Savior. Because that's how you know. Say, Zach, how can you know that you're in elect exile today? It's because I've done what Scripture has called sinners to do. Not a bunch of works to make God happy with me. 
But I've repented of my sin. I've confessed that to him. I've acknowledged it before him. And I've said, I've said, God, the only way that I could belong to you and not belong to this world anymore is that you've covered me with the blood of Jesus Christ that he shed for my sin. If you forgive me because you love me, not because I deserve it. And so, God, I call out to you and I ask that that you would save me because of what Christ has done. God, I trust that you love me so much. And I give my life to you. The scripture says that everyone, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It doesn't matter if you're from Pontus or Galatia or Cappadocia or Asia or Bithynia or Abbeville or somewhere else in our world. If you call upon the name of the Lord, he will save you. And then what is true about these elect exiles Peter is writing to will be true of you for all of eternity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for allowing us to be gathered together and study your word today. God, I know this is only two verses. But God, in your divine providence and the inspiration of your spirit, Lord, you have loaded these two verses with so much truth that we need in our lives. Father, I pray that we wouldn't pass over this as just a little introduction to the letter, but that we would see the richness here. And Father, that for those of us who are Christians, that you would encourage us in who we are in Christ. Father, it would lead us to live for your glory. It would lead us away from arrogance, thinking that we have done anything to add to our salvation. Lord, it is all you. What the Father, the Son, the Spirit have done in bringing salvation into our lives. Father, remind us that we don't belong to this world and therefore we shouldn't look like this world. Father, I want to pray specifically right now for anyone in here who has never repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus. Father, I pray that you would open their hearts by the power of your Spirit, according to your divine plan, to the cross of Christ, that they would be sprinkled with your blood, purified of their sin, as they choose to be obedient to your gospel call to repent, and believe the good news. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.